The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or federal employees sticking it out these last four years. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 19th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest for the full hour is Nancy Wingfield, Northern Illinois University Presidential Research Emerita Professor, principally investigating Eastern Europe history and with her connections in many public agencies, Dr. Nancy Wingfield is an academic for the moment. She will gauge for us how U.S. governmental institutions and their employees have weathered under the Trump administration and potential consequences for maintaining democratic values in the domestic and foreign arenas. Yep, we'll try to get that all in in this hour on the eve of the inauguration of the Biden-Harris administration. Throughout her career, Nancy Wingfield has been studying nationalism as well as gender and sexuality in Habsburg Central Europe. Her work often takes her to obscure archives in the far corners of Austria, Czechoslovakia, Italy, and Ukraine. Over her career at Northern Illinois University, Nancy was awarded a Fulbright guest professor in the Rasmus system and much recognition by her peers and her students. In the interest of time, I won't be able to enumerate those. The notions which Nancy has advanced come through her titles, published and presented in her talks. Flag Wars and Stone Saints, How the Bohemian Lands Became Czech. Return to Diversity, A Political History of East Central Europe Since World War II. The Summer Zonenwende, from the traditional German folk festival to radical right-wing mobilizing ritual along Austria's language frontiers, national commemorations of the battle Zoborov in a multinational state, the Germans, Zonwendfeier, and other titles include German solstice celebrations as 20th century radical right-wing nationalist mobilizing rituals, World War One and the dissolution of empire, self-determination, nationalism, and ethnic identity. With her permission, I'm sneak referring to current works in progress that include interwar fascism in Czechoslovakia, prostitution, medicine, and the body in the age of European empires, and a synthetic history of Vienna. Prior to her 1996 appointment at Northern Illinois University, Nancy Wingfield taught at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She completed her BA in history at the University of San Francisco and her PhD in Eastern European history at Columbia University. She comes to us today from her home in the Kansas City area. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Not Kiddo, Nancy Wingfield. That's me laughing. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Well, I think a good place to start, Nancy Wingfield, is the state of your own radar system, or to put it in a particular way, did it require academic credentials such as yours to see the hazards on the U.S. horizon about four or five years ago? 
I would hope not, but all of my historian friends on Twitter are going, why didn't you ask us? We've been saying this. So that's a big, I'm not quite sure. I would have assumed anyone who was paying attention would have known. So your radar, how, how is it faring? That's, I have been, I've been thinking about that. In 2016, my radar should have been better, but I could not conceive of most people voting for Donald Trump every time he said something that was homophobic, gynophobic, racist. I thought, yeah, somebody's going to have relatives or friends and they're, they're just never going to vote for him. And it really wasn't until the night of the election and I saw Pennsylvania going for Trump, I, I thought, okay, we've lost. And from that time until 2018, my radar was so overwhelmed that I, sometimes I didn't sleep. I didn't feel good particularly, as many people didn't. There was always a sense of doom. And then with the 2018 elections, I felt as I'm assuming every, many other people did, gee, I can breathe again. But I still wasn't confident from 2018 when I saw what Mitch McConnell with Donald Trump could do despite a Democratic House of Representatives. And then Wednesday morning after this past election, when I saw that Arizona had been called for Joe Biden, I thought, yes, I can breathe again. And so then down went my antenna. But then I noticed, as everyone else did, Donald Trump wasn't conceding the election. And so my radar is on like full alert until one o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time, I'm assuming it only takes an hour to swear Joe Biden in. And then maybe it will go off. I just don't know. So Nancy Winfield, you are still, you're emerita now, but you are, you're still in contact with students. You're bringing them right along through these last four years with you, are you um, not? I am a, I'm on a lot of graduate committees. So I help train graduate students. And as a matter of fact, in late January, I'm going to do the post fields essays with someone I had worked with. It takes doctoral students quite a long time to get through. And I had to laugh because somebody contacted me on Twitter, a really nice young man who's applying to an MA program. And he simply wanted to know if I'd read his application and tell me what I thought of his essay. And so of course I'm doing that. But I think many academics do this. They, unless they absolutely leave the field, they continue to help not only students, but younger academics. You kind of pass on what you can to help other people. Well, I'd, like for, you to, I'd <laughs> like for you to speak to the point of how you're bringing them along. They're processing what's going on in the real time. And you have the frame of reference from all of your research in Europe from a hundred years ago on, and on either side of the hundred years ago. So are your students hearing it from you? You're speaking on the level of European examples of where we're heading or where we've been heading, or are you, how, how are you sort of bringing them along with the developments in the US? I use European examples, but recently I've been paying attention to 
a man who teaches at the New School, who's a specialist in Southern Hemispheric fascism. And so I've begun to recognize that there are examples of things that people should be watching from all over the world. And I simply suggest that they read them. But I'm not surprised, I suppose, that many of the younger academics and younger students in general that I speak to have a fairly good grasp of what's going on and they don't like it at all. Do they see that they are, they are now privy to, these are the primary resources of a fascist unfolding? I think they do. Students I know, or even simply younger people, children of my friends, for example, are not at all reluctant to use the word fascist to the degree that sometimes I'm like, wait, wait, you can't just call someone you don't like a fascist. But most of them actually have very good reasons for this. And the things they focus on, on this government are, include things like um, climate change. They really blame not only this government, but the people who enabled it for what they consider a ruined future. And I think that's something we should pay attention to. Well, I would like to talk about that, how fascism is being dealt with, but I, I wanna first, I'm gonna back up just a moment and bring up some of the, those that have sort of embodied it that are associated closely with the administration uh, and your take, your earliest take on how they were able to really sort of control the coverage of them and the administration. There's Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka must have really done a number to you since you, you know his sort of heritage in Central Europe. And Richard Grinnell, formerly the ambassador to Germany and his sort of uh, falling in step, he's not known as a fascist, but here he is working alongside the Steve Bannons and Sebastian Gorkas to some extent. Sebastian Gorka is the one I'll mention first because his family's Hungarian, his PhD is from a university, many people question, but more to the point, the Hungarian government under Orban is violating all kinds of EU norms. And it's not a surprise that this government really likes Trump. And Gorka gets on everyone I know's nerves because he lies as blithely as anyone else in the Trump administration and lying and dis disregard for facts seems to me to be a hallmark of this administration. Steve Bannon, I had never heard of until Donald Trump ran for, for president. And then I wished I hadn't heard of him even then. And he's one of these people who you wonder how he got where he is, or at least I do. He has a good education. He should be able to use his brain for things that are good rather than for trying to destroy the United States with nothing left to build in its place, as far as I can tell. I don't think they were as clever at manipulating the media and everybody else as Donald Trump was and is. To me, it was very strange during his 2016 campaign 
that people played the, well, we have to give both sides of the story thing. And no, you don't. When someone is lying, you cut them off or you don't act as if there's, you know, if someone tells you the sun rises in the West, you don't have to go out and make sh look to make sure you just ignore them. And I think that the media real or much of the media made a mistake doing this. They calmed down over time and realized that they had to do something about their interactions with him. How did the Trump administration manage to do what it did? Look at the people it had as press secretaries. Right, right. I'm, I'm going to redirect us to these individuals because of partly their kind of their European kind of aspect in, in several different ways. And I don't know if, I mean, there, I, I only heard one person interview Sebastian Gorka who were effectively able to hold their own. It was a, a member of the Center for Investigative Reporting, Al Letson. I think he's the only person who could interview Sebastian Gorka without being chewed up and spat out. And it's it's that, that sort of unctuous kind of way that Sebastian Gorka controlled those interviews was was a big concern. So I, I wanted to know if you're seeing, are they building a farm team to carry on with the kind of mission they've been on? I assume they are. When they tell you they are, believe them. And if they weren't, don't you think that Gorka would be slowly but surely scurrying off the sinking ship uh, Dinesh D'Souza, whose name I may well be butchering, has not kept his mouth shut. The person who interests me is Kellyanne Conway. Okay. And she used to make me want to put my fist through the TV or the radio or wherever I heard her because she regularly talked over people. And there was a point at which I thought people could say, be quiet, be quiet now. And I assume she, and maybe unfairly, she and her husband are positioning themselves for something after the 20th. I don't know what, but I do think that these people who served in the Trump administration, the true believers, which isn't all of them, are planning to go on and they want to elect people to get the things through they want, and they'll have help from, for example, the people who are so wealthy, they don't know what to do with all their money, but they do know they're not gonna pay taxes. And so there are some of the fellow travelers who I don't believe for one minute, they believe a lot of the malarkey that some of the Trump people spew out, but they do like having all this extra money and I don't know what they're going to do with it because they cannot take it with them. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Nancy Wingfield, Northern Illinois University Emerita Professor in Eastern European History. Sometimes we'll mention Central Europe, but that I've learned from conferring with Nancy on background many times is Central and European history is a very complicated distinction to make. The, she's today taking the long view of what the current administration has perpetrated on the country. And I promise listeners, we're not gonna stay 
in strictly a dark space that we're going to look on and see where we're headed post this administration if I have I that opportunity. So let's look at then how fascism has been dealt with in the mainstream media. And you've had a plenty of, you've done so much work in how that dance has taken place in Europe over the last century. And so I wanna, were you surprised Nancy Wingfield at this diffident approach for media to call a spade a spade with respect to fascism? Um, no, and the reason was that at least some historians and political scientists and other academics were also reluctant to call what we were seeing happening in the United States fascism. They would call it authoritarianism, creeping nationalism, all kinds of things, but not the F word. And people I respect very much were extremely reluctant to do this. Some of it may stem from the idea of limiting the use of the term to a certain period of time. I don't know, but I do know that some historians in the United States at mid-career and later were very early to use that term. And they went up against walls of quite senior people who are saying, no, 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 you can't use this term. And Sir Richard Evans, who is a very famous German historian, just published something saying, no, it's not quite fascism. And his argument was something having to do with Trump not having an imperial army. But people who have studied comparative fascism which is what I was lucky enough to do when I was in school, have learned that Nazism isn't necessarily the primary form of fascism. If you have to have an, you know, a basic form, it should be the Italian fascists. They came up with the idea. And that Nazism is just the German form, but that all kinds of authoritarian governments with a particular kind of leader, and a particular kind of following, anti-democratic ideas. These are forms of fascism. And many of the elements I was trained to believe were fascist, I can find in Trump and his movement. Now, why some of the people in the news don't want to use this term yet, I can't speak for them, but I don't think they should be timid. I think they should use this word because it helps people understand quite how dangerous a threat Donald Trump and certainly many of his followers are. I'm just trying to think of what the, the responsibility that the media has and it, how that responsibility doesn't weigh heavily enough when alarms need to be wrong. And that's it really deeply concerns me, Nancy. I'm sure, how do you feel about that? I am horrified in general. I tend to read print media rather than listening. We don't have cable in our home, for example. And I think I'm lucky that way, but I am surprised at how much leeway people gave Donald Trump. And 
particularly one of the reporters for the New York Times, can I say her name? Absolutely. Um, Maggie Haberman drove me straight up a wall. It's like she was excuses central for him. She's only coming late to the idea that maybe he wasn't a very good thing to have around. And part of the problem of not having taken Trump seriously enough, I think, is the rush to say, okay, now we're done. And not look into what I consider the long-term problems that Donald Trump has helped in, you know, sort of put into our government. And it's, it's not just the appointing at the last minute of people, people who really are not suited or capable to positions that will matter. And here, my favorite is Hope Hicks has been appointed to the Fulbright board. And I've had, I think I've received four Fulbrights over my career and I really appreciated them. But the idea of her having anything to do with judging what constitutes an intellectual undertaking that should be supported by the Fulbright Association horrifies me. And this is something I don't think a lot of journalists, and I don't mean all of them, some of them are just extraordinarily good and have followed issues, important issues during much of Donald Trump's term in office, but others, they don't seem to take this seriously enough. And again, anyone who was surprised by what happened on January 6th was not paying attention. So Nancy, I want to speak to that Hope Hicks appointment point you're making. And we're and looking back at this definition, we're, we're going to refer back to still during the course of this interview. Isn't fascism part of what's the operating aspect is it's neutering sort of intellectual honesty. It's neutering differences. And you can Hope Hicks can do that by not really knowing what awarding Fulbrights is all about in who merits having that kind of funding to do good work around the world. Isn't that, I mean, that's an appointment that sort of is on brand with fascism, is it not? Well, okay, two things. First off, what the Fulbright Board does, as I understand, they sort of set up the broad parameters or heretofore have done that for Fulbrights. Who chooses Fulbright out, I mean, Fulbright applicants are judged by their peers. I've been on Fulbright boards and those are not overtly political. I have no idea particularly why I was chosen. I certainly enjoyed doing it. Um, <laughs> the fascism doesn't necessarily in a very straightforward way get rid of all intellectuals. I mean, some intellectuals are allowed, those who agree with the governing powers. What fascism does is quiets, snubs out voices of dissent. That's what I meant by neutering. Oh, absolutely it does, absolutely. Or it, cow it cows them into silence. And it makes you, you know, at least it makes me think, about how brave anyone is who speaks out 
in a under a fascist government. And I wonder how many people in the United States sort of held their tongues until this past election to see what was going to happen. Yes. Well, I'd like you to speak, Nancy Whitfield, to how American soft power or other influences toward advancing democratic values around the world, how it's been set aside or worse or completely undermined. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, well, Donald Trump went after our allies. That's no surprise everyone who's paid attention to him has said that. He went after our NATO allies and fair enough, maybe other NATO countries should have paid more. But the Baltic states in the North, they were so proud of being members of NATO. And they're small countries. They are still developing from their 1991 to 1993 movement out of the Soviet Union. And to bother them about money when they're on one of the front lines seems to me to be just counterproductive. And you can also get people to pay more if that's your problem without haranguing them. And so that would be one place. And this, the don't harangue your allies strikes me as something, it's how you treat other adults. You may not like NATO, but it's a good idea to treat people from other countries like Angela Merkel of Germany with respect. And I don't know how much damage Trump's love affair with Putin has done. If I were one of the year ahead of the European countries, one of the countries, I would be scratching my head over that. When you carve out the State Department and hollow it out, and this again began not with Trump, but continued under Trump, it started with the first George Bush. Yeah, talk about that. Now, I'm glad you bring that up because that, that the longer view is really important for people to understand the context so that they know how to proceed to be civically literate here, to know how to proceed as citizens. The State Department was simply one of the departments that was hit for budget cuts. And at certain times, I believe, the classes of State Department employees, they didn't have um, the, the Foreign Service test a couple of times. And so when you do that, you lose people because the st a State Department career is a long durée one. It's something people don't tend to join and then leave after five years. We it's decades, right? The people I know who went into it, and you know, it's not like I know hundreds, but the people I know started in their late 20s, early 30s, and that's where they spent their career. They spent it all over the world doing different things. And then at 65, I think they, they retire. But there are also the people who work at the various embassies. There are um, locals and things like that. And it's not just those people, it's the Fulbrights, for example, right. from those countries who come to the United States. It's various cultural programs that the embassies put on. 
And those things are very, very important. When I was a graduate student, because I was studying abroad, and at one point in Czechoslovakia, um, then in the late communist period, what I got to do for culture, besides going to hear um, Czech music, was listening to the people that the embassy brought in. And I think Edward Albee was among them. I never would have heard him otherwise. And it's that kind of thing. Now, granted, in countries with authoritarian governments, the general population doesn't necessarily get to benefit from these things. But in other countries, they do. And I think that's really very important. One of the soft sort of power things the Germans do is day a a day, the German academic exchange, where they bring in people to learn German, they sponsor fellowships and things like that. And the British do the same thing. And those are the kinds of things that when they become politicized, like overtly politicized, you lose. And I'm talking about culture more because that was my experience with what the US could do. But I simply think that Donald Trump, well, I mean, it's no surprise, the man doesn't play well with others. And some of his ideas might have been quite all right. We can argue about the Chinese and what kinds of trade relations we want with them, but you don't do as well, I wouldn't think, if you're fighting with people and belittling them. And then the other thing I think that's very, very important for how people see the United States, besides Trump turning on the allies, is the people besides Putin, he seemed to get on with the dictator in North Korea. Oh, we can stay with Europe the, the, in Central and Eastern Europe, of well, all those that you, you've known, you've well, observed the, up very closely. Well, but I think, I think the other is important because MBS and, and all the, the dictators across the world, Brazil, for example, those are Trump's people of choice. Now, when we go to Europe, he didn't seem to like anybody except for Boris Johnson, who's, and why? But the Polish head of state, the Hungarian head of state, and the Slovene head of state are extremely tightly tied. And I have to stop there. These three heads of state are not particularly democratic, and they are great admirers of Donald Trump. In fact, the Slovene prime minister, Jansha, he accepted Trump's story of the election being stolen from him. And Jansha tweets in both Slovene and English, so you can go read it for yourself. I'm not sure if he's recognized Joe Biden yet. Oh, wow. This is, this is fairly amazing. And Yansha is going after cultural and academic people in his own country. He's replacing well-qualified museum people with noticeably less well-qualified museum people who have some kind of relationship with him. So... I think we can also talk about examples that Trump has set, but 
but also how bad behavior by one person can be picked up by another and go back and forth. Indeed. And I'd also like to talk about that institution that a part of American Soft Power is the Voice of America. And it was within the last year and a half that the heading up that agency where there was a strong tack away from the original charter of offering news to people like right in the, on the ground, as residents all, all the way down uh, through societies to send a different message so that like in Eastern European countries, the ones that are hearing nothing but propaganda, but there was always the voice of America, but that's now puppeting what is the regimes in charge are already saying. There isn't a counterbalance in a Voice of America broadcast. Voice of America is something that interests me a great deal. It was long headquartered in Munich. And when I was a student, we'd go, it was in English Garten and we'd go by it. I knew people who worked their summers and people's families in Eastern Europe really appreciated Voice of America. Now, under Reagan, I wasn't entirely convinced that what it had to say was what I thought might always be broadcast, but in fact, it did provide another voice. And even if it was jammed, some people could still hear it. And I think it was tremendously important. I'm not sure what Pompeo thinks he's doing, He's put people in place and they will apparently be very difficult for President-elect Joe Biden to remove them. All of this sort of burrowing they're doing in the government will have important ramifications. It would be nice if Voice of America could present some kind of alternative, very serious news. For those of you who just joined us, My guest for the full hour is Nancy Wingfield. She's an emerita professor in Eastern European history at Northern Illinois University. And we're talking now about really important institutions that are American institutions to broadcast literally democratic values around the world. And I'd like to sort of tack now to what exactly, specifically enumerate all the ways in which the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and I want to remind listeners, formerly from Fountain Valley, Orange County, he was a West Point graduate, he was a Kansas congressional member, and now, as I will say, take the liberty saying he's busily pursuing a scorched earth mission in our national foreign policy agency. I want you to sort of enumerate, Nancy, where those embedded kinds of appointments are occurring that are going to be very difficult to reverse in the new Biden-Harris administration, what their their roles are. The designations are important, I think. Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, reversing President Obama's attempts to have better relations with Cuba, And the point here, if bad relations with Cuba haven't destroyed it in these last 60 years, do we really think that's what's going to help now? Why don't we look at a place like Vietnam and think, gee, maybe we could have this kind of relationship? Um, 
designating the Houthi rebels in Yemen as a foreign terrorist organization maybe will make the Saudis happy. I don't know. But one thing it will do and has people at NGOs who work with food terrified, it's going to cause mass starvation of people who are already facing starvation. And something he did quite a, or didn't do a while ago has to do with Central Europe. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to backtrack to it. In 2018, 2019, 2020, Central European University, a well-known and well-regarded university that George Soros founded in Budapest, was slowly but surely pushed out of Budapest. Part of it remains there. The bulk of it is now in Vienna. And this was in part to stop the production of knowledge that the Orban government did not like. And part of it was, to my point of view, a very straightforward anti-Semitic move against Soros, who is the wealthiest scion of Hungary. I mean, he's an American long since, but he is a Jew of Hungarian origin. And Central European University is an extremely well-regarded school. I was lucky enough to speak there. I was one of the last history speakers there in the autumn when they finally decided they had to move. This is the kind of thing that Pompeo has done. He has not supported various institutions that are useful for democracy. And we don't know how much damage things like this Cuba, this designation of Cuba as a sponsor of state terror. We don't know how much damage that will do. We know that the Biden administration will be able to undo these things. But while they're spending their time undoing the mess that Pompeo has created, they're not able to spend their time doing positive things. And I think this is a concern. And I'm also mindful, it's been pointed out to me that the point of Pompeo making these designations is to force the Biden-Harris administration to be on record as doing the reverse, to sort of say, we support Cuba, we support the Houthis, we support the you know, various, the declaration also that Al-Qaeda um, uh, oh, being, being connected with Iran. Which is a, so all of these things are gonna force the, the Biden-Harris administration to affirm positions that might be a, a kind of a nuanced, longer project to make the case to the, let's say internally in American soft power domestically. Well, I can't imagine outside of Miami Beach, and maybe I'm wrong, there are that many people who are opposed to coming very close to normalizing relations with Cuba. Everybody I know wants to go visit or has visited. The business with Iran, which you brought up, I think is tremendously important. And getting um, Jared Kushner anywhere near Bibi Netanyahu, I think is frightening. And he seems to be, Netanyahu that is, seems to be one of the moving forces behind some of the attempts to further vilify Iran. 
And if I had to name something, the sort of dark horse and things that would keep me up at night until one o'clock on January 20th, it's what Donald Trump might do with Iran because they've, because the, the pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement was, in my opinion only, in a, an administration that did nothing right, as far as I'm concerned, in foreign policy, probably its worst decision. Nancy, I was concerned about that possibility, a last minute sort of incursion of an attack in Iran by the Trump administration. But you know, I'm thinking that the whole insurrection on January 6th of this year, it, I think it kind of rolls the boulder in front of the cave, that that's, that kind of boxes out the administration. There's, there's too much of an opposition now to the sitting administration for enough of a heft of the armed uh, forces advisors to set that attack on Iran in motion. I think that not, January 6th pretty much says that there isn't enough personnel that would allow that to happen, that they would all slow walk any kind of orders that would come out of the, the West Wing. I think you're probably right, but I don't put anything past them. I know, but, I know. <laughs> but I think I, I had not thought of it that way. What I was actually thinking about was Netanyahu going in and doing something and Trump, you know, helping. Um, but I, I take your point and I think it's a very good one. We will have so much work to do getting back to where we were even at the beginning of the Trump administration, getting our now absolutely horrible relations with Iran back to sort of just bad relations. And I think that just gives us lots of extra work. And we also have to pay attention to what's going on in Ukraine. The Trump administration let that simmering mess just keep simmering and thousands of people have died in the fighting in Ukraine. An institution building has certainly suffered and those institutions need all the support they can get around the whole world. They absolutely do. And Ukraine is interesting. I told you that I'd lived there it was a little bit like a three month timeout because I was in Southern Ukraine and it was really hard to leave, but Ukraine is fascinating. And the people I dealt with, the students were well-educated, the people were interesting. And I learned a great deal. And the fact that the administration treated the Ukrainians just like they, they weren't human. They were just something that Trump thought he could use to go after Biden and to go after his enemies. And I find that reprehensible. And I, I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine not having you know any kind of crystal ball, but it strikes me that the behavior of the American diplomats there not the career diplomats, but the political appointees exemplifies the worst of Trump's political appointees worldwide. And we all saw them on TV. And we can imagine that there are more of those everywhere Donald Trump was able to appoint someone. 
And I'd like to give you an opportunity, Nancy Wingfield, that you've done a lot of research on the LGBTQ demographic in Europe. And I want you to draw parallels between what you see in Europe unfolding in this last century and now the policy that has attended to them in the US. I, the situation in each country in Europe varies tremendously, but where we can see the greatest discrimination against and ill treatment of LGBT people is to my mind in these same countries that have the least democratic governments. Poland, for example, is walking back all kinds of things. And the polls recently, I don't know if you or the audience paid attention to their decisions on abortions. It, on abortion, it's like they're racing <laughs> the United States to see who can make abortion the hardest to get. And Polish women were out on the street, more power to them. Something which interests me in Europe, while they don't have very many abortions and they're not always easy to get, they have all kinds of birth control available. Right. And then that, that's even, now we're probably leading with that requirement. The abortion right. pill ca has, cannot be mailed any longer. But in general, my experience is intolerant authoritarian governments are intolerant of people who they consider different than them and who don't fit into a particular category that they find important. In Poland, it's a traditional family, maybe a kind of family that never was, but man, woman, and children going to church, going to the Catholic church. This strikes me as very, very important. There are other countries that are not necessarily overly advanced in their laws about LGBTQ people, but it really seems to me that it's in the more authoritarian countries that we see if, of Europe, but also the United States, where we see ill treatment of these people. And it bothers me that we have a woman, a quite young woman on the Supreme Court now, who can spend her career making the lives of these people miserable because she has some particular religious belief that she thinks is more important than their lives. Religious or cultural, maybe. <laughs> I don't think it's religion, Nancy. I think it's in part religion because she had a particular kind of Roman Catholic upbringing. And it, it's not a standard, gee, I went to the you know, Jesuit school in town. She was educated, I think, in a very particular way. Right. And so it's, it's culture, what, religio-cultural. And I'm not going after the Roman Catholic Church on that. I'm going after her for not having paid attention to the fact that her beliefs shouldn't be, her personal beliefs shouldn't be allowed to hurt other people. And while I'm on that subject, I don't want to hear from anyone talking about her 
that she is pro-life because the Supreme Court has been really active in helping the Trump administration judicially murder people in its last months. And I do not understand that. If you're so, I don't understand how you can be violently opposed to abortion, but equally violently in favor of the death penalty. Catherine Stewart's work, she explains it exactly why Amy Coney Barrett does, how she can do it in her head, how that following does it, that all these people in that mind about reproductive freedom, that they see the fetus as it's innocent and it's perfect. And that's it. There's no, there's nothing after, there's nothing as perfect after that point, you know? And so in their minds, anybody after the gestation period, any human being, there's no more, that's no, it's kind of Calvinistic in a way. It is, you're exactly right. I see what you mean. That I think is interesting because my feeling is, my point is more polemical than anything else. You prevent unviable fetuses for any reason being aborted, yet you will kill a human being. And I, I simply, I guess I, you know, I just don't agree with that. At least we know the last person they can put to death was put to death last night. And I do hope that one of the first things Biden does is takes everybody on federal death row and commutes their sentences. He's certainly telegraphed that is his disposition. Well, I'm just a few moments. I wanna look from this moment forward with you, just in just a brief order, Nancy Wingfield, with your permission is what we have left to work with. Your connections throughout all the public agencies, there's on the federal level and the state and some local level agencies that you've talked with me on background here is what we have to work with, the kind of, we'll call it institutional piety that the, those connections of yours have hung out, stayed the course despite the difficulties at their workplace. How do you see us proceeding past January 20th with those courageous employees who tried to maintain the integrity of their respective institutions? And we'll make that the last question on Ask a Leader with you. I hope that Donald Trump's late announcement that these people that he appointed politically were to leave does not mean that any of them will be able to burrow in to the various departments that they are in and that the people who've stayed the course will be able to move along with their work. I hope the various departments that have been hollowed out, especially in Washington, D.C., where those job losses, unless I'm very much mistaken, belong to many African-Americans who work in lower levels of the government. I hope those positions are filled very rapidly. I am so thankful that we have a Democratic majority in the Senate so Joe Biden can get through his appointees. I think that's tremendously important. I'm thrilled that he is adding science and math to his cabinet. Sort of sorry it's not Andrew Yang being the STEM secretary, but the faster these people get in and get to work, 
the better off I think we will be because we'll finally have, again, a government that's trying to help people, that's trying to do minor things like send you your passport or on the local level, trying to help you do something. The people at the state level trying to expand Medicare so everybody can have it, that we will, I hope, have a better healthcare, broader healthcare for Americans now that we don't have a government that's hell bent on taking healthcare away from some of the most vulnerable members of the population. I mean, I'm assuming that the, the people that are still in the government are ready and raring to go and so pleased that they can see the light at the end of the tunnel four days from now. So I just want to timestamp this interview. We are doing this interview on January 16th in advance of the inauguration. And this is the juncture I'm trying to bring my guest, Nancy Winkfield, with me at. So I really appreciate having the breadth and the depth of your work giving us perspective on where we are at pre-Biden-Harris inauguration, Nancy Wigginfield. Thank you so much for taking the time and putting us on notice and on the hook to steer the country, hopefully, back to safer shores. Thank you. My guest was Nancy Wingfield, University Presidential Research Emerita Professor at Northern Illinois University. Well, that's my wrap. Tomorrow's the inauguration. Check out your media program guides in order not to miss this most extraordinary of inaugurations. I'll join you in taking in the whole pageant, willing with all that I can muster that it will be safe there and all around the country. On next week's show, UCI epidemiologist Andrew Neumer will return to talk about all the updates you've been waiting for. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. To masks, add a vaccine. They go well together for the while.